0: Welcome to the Stringer Podcast number 14. 014, if you're in the tri-digit mood. Yeah, got nothing there. Armin Bedakian on this week's pod from the score formerly of MLSsoccer.com, the last of those three older interviews that I said we we're trying to wrap up before we get into some new stuff next week. At Armin Badakian on Twitter, at Armin BDKN on Instagram. Clever way of spelling it, if you ask me. But before we get to that... Let's look ahead to the weekend. What do you got going on? This is what we're doing. Friday night, Booze Clues. Clever naming, right? 11 p.m. at Bad Dog Comedy Theater, 875 Blur Street West. I can't, you know what? Honestly, I can't word this any better than they wrote it themselves. Help a group of friends piece together their night of drunken chaos in this improvised comedy show. You decide what happens. We deal with the consequences. Can't do it better than that. Check out baddogtheater.com for details. Saturday night, Simpsons Trivia Night, 7 p.m. at Meltdown Esports Bar, 686 College Street. Watch three episodes of the show, one round of trivia per episode. Fantastic prizes up for grabs. But come on, with all of our favorite Springfield Classic cocktail, Flaming mose, being offered up. Aren't we all winners? Mm-hmm. I thought so. Sunday, March 11th, Nata Surf. Is at Horseshoe Tavern. Let me say it again. Nata Surf is at Horseshoe Tavern. Hello in 1996 Being thrown into trash cans, left-off recess sports rosters, and still blaring popular in my Sony Walkman because Annie Skip on that Panasonic Discipline just wasn't there yet, man. I actually want to get a crew out to this. That's how excited I am. I I don't wanna say worshiped these, that's really creepy. I didn't worship them. But that song, popular, played over and over and over, and I'm hoping they play it for us at the Horseshoe Tavern, Sunday, March 11th, 8pm, 370, Queen Street West. Please remember that if you have an event coming up, anything you want promoted, hit us up on Twitter, at Stringer Podcast, or email us, podcast at thestringers.com, that's Stringers with a Z, because we're Canadian and we don't want to do the S. Cool? Cool. Armin Badakian coming up. Really excited to talk to this guy. Well, I was really excited when I talked to him. Really excited to share this with you. But you know what? That, not a Surf is at the horseshoe. No. Take us to the podcast. Hey, <laughs>
1: Mentioned. Was it really? Where do you end up parking? There's a building up on Dundas with like an impark built in, so I just mm-hmm. uh, dipped in there and then I paid the, what's it called? The 11 bucks or whatever it was. Well, the you, dude, the street is yeah, way cheaper. Except, except it's, uh, you're not allowed to between 4 and 6.
0: Only on the northbound. Southbound, you can. Just ah, on the, just yeah, on the other nice. side of the street, yeah, you can. That.
1: That's uh, all
0: right. Perils of driving in the city. I'm
1: actually, I don't drive very often. No? Yeah, just a couple times, but. Only when there's like four to twelve shifts at work and I'm like the last go training driving me home. Where's home? Pickering. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know you came in from Pickering. Well, I was in North York today. So not too bad, yeah. Chilling or? My dad has a garage there. Yeah, he's a, he's a mechanic. Really? Mm-hmm. No and way. My dad and my mom, mom work together. What was your mom? She does like the front office stuff. Yeah. My dad fixes cars.
0: No way. Yeah.
1: That's sick. Yeah. Ever since you were a kid? Yeah.
0: Has he always had a garage?
1: Oh, yeah. Even before I was born. Yeah? Yeah. Except this new one's like, or not new anymore, but this one is eight or nine years now. So he had another one before that.
0: In North York as well or uh, was, somewhere this else? This one was in
1: Scarborough. Hmm. Yeah.
0: And you're a Pickering kid?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Pickwick. Well, all in Scarborough along. Scarborough first and then I moved to Pickering I was in three, like four.
0: Ten years old? Yeah. Ten About ten that.
1: Old. that? Huh. Big yard and... Uh,
0: Public school or Catholic school. Is kind of fun. Catholic a Catholic school, yeah. Mm-hmm. C- crazy. Uh-huh. Armin Badakian on the podcast. We're, we're recording already. It's oh, an easy was- start. Uh, just the way to do it because there's not a series of questions. It's not a right. a hardcore interview. It's more of a conversation. And so we just kind of start the conversation one spot I like and it. see where it goes. Interestingly enough, in high school... I worked. So my father was in the automotive industry Mm -hmm. and in high school, I worked in a garage for four years, Mm -hmm. five years. And I thought, that's the road I was going to go down. And I worked when I started writing, actually, uh, when I was 18, when I was first published, it was in the automotive industry. I thought for sure I was going to stick with automotive. And that lasted, I think, until I was 19. And that's when I, when I shifted over. Was there ever any pressure for you to, like, carry on the family business and stay in mechanics? Not
1: me, but my my younger brother, he helps out my dad. Really? So he's working with her, too, right now. Um, me, I, I told my dad I wanted to be a journalist when I was, like maybe grade 11, grade 12. Mm -hmm. And he told me, uh, okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're not going to call yourself a journalist. You're going to go do it. And if you are just going to call yourself a journalist then that's not okay. Hmm. So he sort of kicked my butt into it and he was just like, you can do whatever you want to do, but you got to do it. Blue collar attitude. Yeah, exactly. Right. you got
0: to get down to work.
1: Started writing for free, started writing for magazines, just anywhere that would take me. At one point I had like 11 outlets that was just taking my like freelance pieces. Yeah. And I think maybe at the end of the month, I'd make a hundred bucks between them. Mm -hmm. So it was like the hustle. That's the hustle. hustle. Your dad,
0: uh, is, is he like a specialist mechanic in the sense that he only sticks with one vehicle or he really specializes in one part of the vehicle, like engine work or alternators or something like that?
1: No, man. He does everything. There's literally nothing that man can't fix. Really? Not even just in cars, anything household electrical work he's like yeah i can do it and he could he could literally build a house with his two hands if you give him the materials for it so your dad was always from canada no no he was born in uh he was born in syria in aleppo he came to canada because he wanted a better life and and he wanted to i think first he landed in montreal and then he quickly came to toronto um and then my mom had family in toronto as well so she was visiting and uh they were, there were just like the older relatives were just like, Oh, you should meet this boy. And then they were telling him, Oh, you should meet this girl. And they just didn't do it. They just never met. And then the second time my mom came by, they finally met up or whatever. And they started talking on the phone when she was back in Venezuela and within three or four months they were engaged and they've been married for 25 years now. Do you
0: have any family in Montreal? Uh, yes, I do. I have, yeah, I have some family. I love Montreal. So for anyone outside of Canada For at least a Toronto boy growing up, I grew up about an hour north of the city. When you're 18, we do a pilgrimage to Montreal because Quebec, the drinking age, is 18, wherein the rest of, I think the rest, at least in Ontario, I don't know everyone's drinking age, at least in Ontario, it's 19. So at 18 is your first chance to really fall in love with Montreal because you get to drink there. Legally,
1: yeah. I don't, um, I've only ever been to Montreal three or four times, and um, I think the last time was when I was fifteen or sixteen. I haven't you haven't even done your eighteen year old pilgrimage. I was busy, man. Armin I was busy trying to conquer oh. Toronto. No, but uh, every experience I've ever had in Montreal was traumatic and and awful. Really? Yeah, I've never had a good experience. The first time I went to Montreal, I, th- I think we were lost trying to find an address for like an hour and a half, and I was miserable in the car. The second time I went, I must've been eight or nine years old. I found these incredible like Pokemon figures or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like ecstatic because it mm-hmm. was like Mewtwo and like the, the really cool ones I've never seen in Toronto. So I bought them and I'm like, all right, Montreal has been redeemed. Um, and then I lost them within like a day no. or two and I, while
0: you're in Montreal still. Uh,
1: yes. And I convinced myself that someone had stolen my treasures. Like it wasn't that I just lost them at a McDonald's or whatever. Yeah. It was just that someone, some guy from Montreal decided I'm going to steal that kid's toys just a mess the third with time you. I went down, we were staying with like a cousin and they had this awful cat. Like it was a cat from like Satan's personal collection. And it attacked us at every, like we would literally just go to the kitchen to get a drink of water and it would like claw at us. And eventually at one point, my brother was like not looking. He was sitting down somewhere doing something. And this cat was on a ledge behind him. And then he just scratches the back of my brother's head. And like. Demon th- cat. Yeah. Put bandages on him and stuff. It was awful. I, I grew up with a bunch of cats,
0: um, had a dog as well, but sometimes they get you like some and it doesn't even matter the animal. Sometimes you guys, you're just on the same page. It's almost like humans. You guys vibe really well and other times they're just out to mess you up. Like they just want to screw with you like this cat who decides he wants to attack your brother just for the sake of scratching him down the back of the neck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I never had a dog or a cat growing up. My godmother had a dog though. So it was sort of like our, like we grew up with him. His name was Teddy and uh, yeah, I mean, he was the coolest dog of all time and not a problem with him at all. What I grew up with actually was weird, man. I had some weird pets growing up. I had a crawfish. I had a frog named Sir Jumps-A-Lot. I had a piranha that was like at least a foot long, just living in an aquarium. We bought them when they were two. And they were small, and then one of them must have killed the other one, and then this one just like, took over the territory. And uh, man, I remember it was Thanksgiving Day, maybe five years ago, five mm-hmm. or six years ago, and like a week before, this fish had just flipped upside down. Like it was living in the aquarium all its life, and it just suddenly was upside down. But it was still swimming. It was still. It was alive. Yeah, it was alive. It was still... It, it was, was just, just living down. life the other way. Yeah. It just decided, I guess, I'm going to start so living trippy. upside down. That's so trippy. And then on Thanksgiving Day, we're sitting down, we're having dinner, we're, you know, turkeys out and everything. And we just hear like this thrashing in the in the other room. We're just like, what's going on here? And uh, my dad goes to check and my fish of 10 years, my piranha of 10 years decided that was the day that he's going to kick the bucket. So, oh,
0: poor guy. What was his name? What was his piranha's He actually name? never named him. The first cat I remember having... There were three boys and we each were able to give him a name. So the cat's name was Newton Milo Scruff Hansler. Each of the three boys got to give him a name. I obviously giant nerd called him Newton because, hey, why not? Sir Isaac Newton, I guess, was my hero at the time. But because he had three names, he actually had no names and he was cat for his whole life. <laughs> It was, it was the simplest and people thought we were ridiculous because we tell them, you're like, what's your cat's name? We're like, oh, it's Newton Milo Scruff, but we just call him cat. I like it. So Pickering Scarborough
1: first, then Pickering.
0: Yeah. And you would have been in Pickering when you're like, I think I want to be a journalist.
1: Yeah. It was right there. Uh, Actually, I didn't even want to just be a journalist. My primary motivation at the time was to actually get into TFC games. That was my big thing. Like... Uh, I, I, remember being a kid falling in love with TFC. I was at like someone's house and the first game was against Chivas USA of all time, I think. Yeah, you're right. And, in Chivas. Yeah. And I was watching this game and I thought it was Mexican soccer. Like I didn't even, MLS wasn't even like a thing in my mind. So I'm, I'm sitting there watching this team and it's TOR or T, or TFC or whatever. And I'm like, is this Toronto? Like, is this, do we have a team? I didn't even know that. But I'm watching this guy, Jimmy Brennan. I'm watching these, like, these players. And I'm just like, all right, I can get into this. So, I go home, do a little bit of research. I'm like, all right, I'm down. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sold. Team. I'm signed up. Like, at this point, I'm watching Kaká play for AC Milan. And I'm kind of starting to like Chelsea a little. But Toronto, I'm like, yeah, Toronto, that's my team. So, quickly, obsession grew. By the time Danny Dicchio scores his first goal, I'm, I'm all in. Like, I'm invested. But... I'm like, what, 13 at this point? I don't even remember. And thankfully, first of all, you had like
0: seven weeks or eight weeks yeah. between that first game against Chivas and when De- Danny Dicchio scored that first yeah, goal. Yeah. You had a bit of time to grow your base of knowledge there.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was the first tough lesson, which was that sometimes you got to wait for stuff. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, uh, It was it was hard to go as a 13-year-old because... My dad's working and it's, it's tough to kind of like put together even 80 bucks for a ticket or whatever it was, you know, like I had to use my allowance. I was delivering newspapers at the time and that was like where I would be able to even get my ticket. So around the age of 14, 15, I started realizing like I'm too in love with this team to only go three or four times a season. Like I got to start going regularly. How am I going to get in through the door? And again, season tickets at this time, like the fever was high at this time yeah. still. So
0: you're like, how can I do this? How do I get in for here? free? And so, <laughs> how the, can I not pay for a ticket yet still have a really good seat? Obviously,
1: I'm gonna, uh, I, I'm finding that I'm, I'm really happy with like writing, and a lot of people are telling me I'm decent at it and pretty good at it. Like I'm doing well at writers' craft classes and stuff. So it's at this point where I'm starting to think I'm putting one and one together. I'm like, all right. If I can get myself a media pass, I can go to these games and if I can go to these games, I can practice my writing and maybe I can put like a sports like journalism twist on this writing mm-hmm. and you know maybe I could write like a sports book or like try to be a sports journalist, try mm-hmm. to be a soccer writer. Um so I think my first big break was Red Nation Online, which is run by an incredible group of guys.
0: Is that SB Nation, part no, of the no, no, SB Nation group? A, no, it's
1: a solo group. It's okay. run by a guy named Steve Botcher, Ian Clark, and Rick Evangelista. And these three guys, man, they gave me my first shot. They like, took me in under their wing, mm. basically said, whatever you want to write, write. And man, looking back at some of those articles, whew, they, were, they were very generous with me. What was your target in the
0: early days? Were you doing... Uh, game review like recaps or previews or did you have general subjects like fandom of football in Toronto
1: the first kind of thing that I did before I even got the pass to go to the actual games was um, this like regular post match like kind of feature thing called good bad and ugly and it's just straight up like what was good what was bad and what was ugly mm-hmm. about the game but that was like sort of my signature sort of feature and that's what I used to do at the end of every single game. And it also gave me a very good excuse to watch these games. Cause I'm just like, yo, I'm not just watching it. Like I'm doing, you know, I'm doing something afterwards. Um, so that was like the first kind of thing. And I would also just do a lot of opinion stuff. Like I remember, I think the first thing I wrote was on Mike Santos. I think that was like the first article that I got published. From there, uh, from Red Nation, I got a job at, or I got a freelance gig with Soccer 360 Magazine. And from there, it was just like every every sort of three or four months, I would pick up something new, get get to some other place, and eventually um, ended up at MLS, at MLSsoccer.com. So that was like the big, big break. And then from there, it's just been... Great.
0: The digital world has really opened it up, especially... Now, actually, I say this with there's two sides of the story. It's really opened it up for writers because I... I was first published in the more traditional sense in a magazine, but as you said, at any given point, you could be juggling a ton of different outlets, and that's really what online has given us, where there's like tiers of outlets in the sense that you have still your big ones, your your the, the you know the ones that have either a print affiliation or still a print issue, but then you have. Regular, we think of the athletic that's you know out and 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 functioning right now, where it operates. In what was a quote unquote print fashion, but only in a digital landscape. And then you have a bunch of top-tier bloggers, and, and you know, you mentioned the you know, three guys that gave you your break and a group of others, and then you have another tier of bloggers under that where they run sites, and then you get into a little more of the fandom sites under that. But at any given point for a writer, if you want to write there's spots for you to put your stuff and worst case scenario, it's not like 30 years ago, you could, if you wanted to write, you could just publish your own newspaper, right? Now you could create your own blog. You have all the opportunity in the world. And and I I, I would only imagine that helps you really hone the craft even quicker because you're, you're able to write on several different subjects and kind of fine tune the way you write, whether it's opinion pieces or you know, quippy, you know, attention grabbing, click through pieces or recaps or previews.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always took it as a series of steps. That was always like my mentality was, uh, this is where you are right now and don't rush it because where you are right now, you need to do something, learn something and get somewhere before you can get to the next step. So like that tier that you mentioned, I knew that like, it's unlikely, no matter how good you think you are, no matter what like kind of content you're coming up with, you, no one's going to give you a shot if you don't kind of go through the grind first. So, yeah, I did start on like the sort of fan blog level and then I did kind of get that break and the magazine was more of like a traditional print kind of thing. But even then, in, the, in it, it, like the grand scheme of things, soccer magazines are not necessarily like the same thing as like Time Magazine, National Geographic. So... It's always a tiered kind of step. And then my ultimate motivation was build a good name for yourself. Build a, like a kind of a, a reputation for doing good work and to see where that takes you. And I think when I started writing for MLS, that was like when it became real. And it was it was always just like, well, I'm kind of a soccer writer, but like maybe this isn't going to happen. But when I started writing at MLS, it was like, all right, so this is like your thing now. Like you can do this. And at that point, it was like 100% about... Get as good a story as you can, no matter what, no matter what the story is, no matter what like you got to do to get it, just get it. And again, like, like I said, you learn your lessons along the way. Like when I was writing for MLS, uh, I thought that I was doing some pretty like good work, but I realized now in in retrospect, like looking back, like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Like I was looking out only for me. And in the end of the day, like if you're, if you're not wary of the relationships that you're building with the people around you, if you're, if you're like, A dumb selfish 18 year old kid going after just for yourself you're gonna burn out you gotta focus on the people around you as well so I made that mistake man I live with that regret every day like I wish I could go back to those days and be like Armin listen man look you can get a scoop on a big story but you're gonna if the player for example that you're talking to doesn't want that out yet you're gonna hurt that guy or if if you're not wary of the people around you yeah you might get that scoop but at what cost you know (laughs) It's, it's that balance. And that's kind of the thing that I really struggled with. And, and that was a hard lesson to learn because I learned it by making those mistakes a lot. You brought up so many good points there. So many. But the
0: point on relationship building is so important. And I am still learning how important that is. We're always searching for the best story. But there are so many incredible stories, as you said, that could damage the people involved. And, and a valuable lesson I learned with actually one of my previous producers who was above me, uh, and he's now moved on to a different role. He said, we're not saving lives. And actually I believe his father was a doctor, in which case he had a really good perspective on what (laughs) saving lives meant. But he said, we're not saving lives. We're in the entertainment industry. And it's true. Thankfully, I, I'm very thankful we don't have the responsibility on us to to have to report on, on, on those kinds of things. But we get to present people with an escape. We get to show them a side of life that allows them to forget about perhaps you know the stresses of earning enough to pay the rent or you know, what the immigration policy for the U S is going to be. And we get to help them through that. And so the relationships we build on both sides, both with the subject right so we need to work with them and and, and create this long history with them t- because you never know where that leads in the future if you've known someone 20 30 40 years i think my, like it's not been that long but i think of my relationship with someone like Dwayne De Rosario who has spanned over a decade now and and how i've been able to work with him but also then the people you work with you know or the people in the, you know in the industry with you because you have to know this by now it's such a small industry that you're crossing paths with people all the time. Even if they move on to a job in New York, you still end up seeing them three, four, five, six times a year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of the, the struggle because it's it's hard. And to the point of the escapism of this, the entertainment factor of this, I don't want to take away from like the journalistic ethics that you actually have to maintain. Because if a story was being told, I my primary motivation was to serve a reader what the truth is. But at the same time, soccer is, I I love this quote because, and I'm not sure who said it, but soccer is the most important, least important thing in the world. That's the beauty of it. It's In the end of the day, soccer is a huge escape for so many people, like billions of people around the world. And that's kind of the beautiful part of it. I mean, people take it seriously because it's a part of their lifestyle. (laughs) So I never want to like take away from that, you know, because it is serious. People do care about their clubs. People do care about the things that are going around. But at the same time, you sort of understand like, in the end of the day, these are men kicking a ball around, women kicking a ball around. And whether the goal goes in or not, life will go on for all of the fans, for all the people, and especially for the players. I mean, these, these are human beings. These are people who have their own families, their own lives. Toronto, though, I believe is a pretty good city
0: for people of celebrity status to kind of go about their life without so much hassle. Yeah. And... You know, I've seen some crazy things. I think of TIFF as it comes in and out. And I've seen swarms of photographers outside hotels. But outside of that one week, there's tons of like major entertainment celebrities that pass through the city seemingly unnoticed. And you might hear that they were at this place for dinner or or in that area of town or at this bar but I think Toronto, I, the, you can agree or disagree. I think Toronto's a pretty good spot for that.
1: Yeah, Toronto's a, a, kind of a weird city because, like, it's so big. It's so, like, fulfilling. But we still have this, like, sort of small-town mentality where if, like, someone dro- like name-drops Toronto in a song or whatever, we're like, hey! We're they, super they, yeah, excited about it. Like, hey, they mentioned us. Like, yeah, we're, like, the third or fourth biggest city in North America. Like,
0: third, third. Oh. Third population-wise, I think, behind... L.A. and New York, mm-hmm. right? If you want to include Mexico, then we're fourth because yep. it's L.A., New York, Mexico City, and then second land area wise, only behind L.A. I love. I'm a friggin' nerd. I love dropping those stats. Yeah. I said it's that same thing you said. It's this is my version of hearing Toronto in a song. Right? Someone says Toronto's big, right? And I'm like, let me tell you how big it is. <laughs> it's massive in North America. Bigger yeah. than Boston. Bigger than Chicago.
1: Bigger than Dallas-Fort Worth area. Yeah. And plus, what are those? guys have. I mean we got stuff. We got we got all all kinds of cool stuff. We got everything. We got a little we, bit of we, 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 Yeah, we exactly you we have every- a little bit of every culture. Yeah. I, I
0: think I think what happens we, we have this dichotomy that exists in personality with on one side, how multicultural it is. And so someone of any walk of life, you can come across on the street, like whether it's nationality or religious background or, you know, lifestyle preference or whatever. We have become fairly accustomed to seeing them at some point of our week or something because we can come across them so easily just in day to day because we're such a multicultural uh, city. But on this flip side of it, we're still Canadian. And, and what are the things Canadians are known for? We're excessively polite. We're kind of quiet into ourselves. We don't beat our chest too much outside of hockey. You you know, we kind of keep to ourselves and are happy being our own little bubble. And I think that comes from, having the US as a big brother all the time. Yeah. And so that helped develop that quietness. And so you mix that with multiculturalism and we can come across anyone in the street of whatever status or celebrity and it's just kind of normal and cool and we're not going to bug them.
1: I have a theory about why Canada is polite and why Canada is a little more reserved, a little more quiet. Ooh, I'd like to hear this. I have this theory that it's, it really comes down to the weather. Oh, interesting. I think the fact that it gets so cold here that you can actually die by being outside tempers people. I think having that healthy fear of like your world being capable of ending you as morbid as that sounds, I think that kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. And I think this is why the happiest countries in the world are also among the coldest. I mean, you look at scan like the Scandinavian countries, Sweden and Denmark and Norway and all them. Those oh, guys always rank among the happiest, most like well developed like lifestyles and this and this and that. I think it's a healthy fear of death from the outside, and you don't see that in places like the southern parts of the United States. I mean, you could. See I don't know. California is pretty chill. California's pretty chill. But it's, it's pretty also, chill, but it's also an outlier to the rest of the southern part. Yeah, of the it United is. You're States right. Yeah, where, completely. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just spouting nonsense. But I feel like it's a good theory. The fact I that like your it. Environment can like literally end kill in, you. Yeah, that
0: just existing outside can kill you. Yep, makes us nice people. Yeah, we because gotta, we're just appreciative. We're appreciative of every day that we get.
1: Yeah. Base, <laughs> because I, it could end, end not, at any point. I, I think it's subconscious. I don't think that people are actively going like, oh man, it's snowing today. I'm going to die. But I think the fact that you always sort of have to take precautions and it's not even just that. I also feel like because it's such a collective thing, it's not, a, it, it's not an individual experience. I mean, this is things that like everybody around you is experiencing. Like when it snows really badly, it's not just your commute. It's not just your day that's been ruined. It's everybody's. It's everybody around you. And so I think that has a very kind of tempering effect on any sort of like heated passion. But I I also think that because it's sort of a shared misery that everybody can sort of go like, all right, let's just try to not be dicks to each other. November seems
0: to be that turning point where life goes from awesome, it's fall, and I have all these great sweaters I get to wear, to fuck you it sucks i'm trying to kill you with my sleet and my snow and my freezing rain and all the ways you can die just scraping your car off in the morning
1: yeah and then your scraper breaks and your key doesn't unlock the door because the lock is frozen and uh, you just sort of look at yourself like why are we, why are any of us here? Why are we
0: doing this to why ourselves?
1: We, we could probably create a list of gimmicky tra-
0: contraptions from Canadian tire that have tried to combat like the cold weather. I think of key warmers, Ooh. right? To warm your key so we can get through the ice on the door. I need one of those. There's like those mitts, scrapers, Right where it's, it's, it's this really... It looks like an oven mitt with a scraper on the end wow. for your windshield. Automatic car starters. or That's not gimmicky. Man, that's basically necessity up here. I feel Canadian Tire has cornered the market with shit we don't think we need, but they make us want it.
1: I think the one winter invention that I don't you know... You can't, can't live without. can't live without are gloves with like the fingertips that let you use your phone. Oh, see, I'm, you can tell what
0: generation you're from. No, I, because I I can't be bothered with that crap.
1: No, you know how hard it is to like do winter, like just live a normal life. If you have to take your gloves off and like just a text and then put your phone in your pocket and then feel the vibration and you're like, oh, come on.
0: You see, that's why I use my commute to unplug. I don't have to look at my phone because I can't touch it because I don't want to take my gloves off. But it's true when they I don't know what they call it. They have a word for it, though, that gives you the ability to touch your screen on your iPhone.
1: Yeah. With those fancy gloves. That was a game changer.
0: We went through a whole whack of the different outlets, which you wrote for and where that kind of plugged into the timeline. But what about schooling? What was your, where did your schooling fit in and where do you go to school? You're in the city, right?
1: Yeah. I went to Ryerson for journalism.
0: Oh, bring it up. on Ryerson. Yeah. I was great, like, great programs. Tons of people come out are, uh, of Ryerson in the yeah, sports industry.
1: A lot of people actually. Um, and some of the people that are working right now, like a lot of the people that were in sports um, when I went to school there, like we're kind of interested in it. They're all, they're all working now. So that's really kind of encouraging to see. I'm actually working with another person who is in my graduating year. She works on the basketball desk. Her name is Victoria. So we both ended up at the. Shout school. out Victoria! Shout out to Victoria. What's her last name? Uh, I think Win. Follow her on Twitter. Yeah. She's on the basketball desk, but like, yeah, a lot of people that I went to Ryerson with are at different sports outlets now. Um, but yeah, I, I never really considered other schools. I, I applied to uh, Ryerson for journalism, and I also applied to U of T for journalism. And I had a really strong portfolio. So I got my acceptance like right off the bat. Like I didn't have to wait. Don't brag anything. or anything. No.
0: you know, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I just, I'm just saying I had a really, really strong portfolio. Yeah. Like uh, I'm pretty impressive. Oh, I'm
1: going to take credit for it. Like, I, I, I did have a As you should. decently strong portfolio. And so the acceptance was from Ryerson first. Like it just came in, um, in the first wave, I, I suppose, cause it came in before the other one did. And, Right away, I just accepted it that very day. Like, I logged in. I was like, whatever. And then whatever U of T says, it's fine. So, the U of T one came back. I was accepted that too. But it was never really a choice. I was just... I Interesting. Really you're Harrison. all Ryerson all the way. Yeah. And it was it was literally just a case of... I love Toronto. So, like, going to Ryerson was just, like, the one kind of most attractive option. Because it's, like, right there. You know, Young and Dundas. You're literally right in the thick of it. And that was, like, the best, I think, decision I could have made not even just for the fact that it was where it was and like kind of the, the location and, and the experience, but the classes were all really strong. Um, I felt like doing a journalism degree straight up was hugely advantageous. And because, especially because I didn't focus too much on the writing parts. like I didn't take much of the writing classes. I was like, all right, I, I, I'm doing all right on the writing stuff. Like I got to write, like I, I took a couple on the first couple years just because I had to, but I was like, all right, if I'm here, I'm gonna try to become like more well-rounded So I really focused on TV, TV production, video editing, and then photo editing. So by the end of those four years, I was pretty solid at like Premiere Pro and and Photoshop and that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of big experience that I took out of Ryerson. Um, But the funny thing is, and I don't know if I should be upset about it or not, but I finished my four-year journalism degree program. And the year that I finished, Ryerson launched its sports media program Oh, no way. And I'm just sitting there going like, ah, oh, man, God damn it. I was this close. Yeah. It was, this it was close. It's been months. Like if I hadn't, if I don't know, it's all right. I think, I think doing journalism was probably a better option. Anyways, it probably got a better kind of more useful education out of it. But you walk through like the, uh, the madame athletic center where I think most of the classrooms are. And you're just like inundated with like this incredible sports media culture. Like I, I was walking through it. I was being given a tour of it in my last year, my last week, I think And I'm sitting there going like, man, how did this happen? Yeah, it's
0: dope. But you know what? And this is just my personal opinion. And I'm sure people can crap on me for disagreeing, but you can, you can have a general journalistic mindset and degree and background and experience and schooling and apply it to sports or to anything because with a journalism degree, you could decide when you get to be my age, listen to me here, young Armin. When you get to be my age, you could decide that, hey, I want to take on a new challenge. Yeah. Right. That, that I want the adrenaline of like ambulance chasing or something like that. Um and you, but you, and you never lose that where sports, you, you kind of end up handcuffing yourself in, yeah. uh, just to one thing, but it doesn't mean that your degree doesn't already definitely apply to sports and allow you obviously to get where you are today as a sports writer. Where did it, where did your schooling fit in with your secular opportunities. Like, were you, you were still in school when you were with MLS, weren't yeah, you? Yeah.
1: I was in my third year of university, second semester, and I was just in the middle of a classroom and I got an email from Simon Borg saying, Hey Armin, got your, uh, got your name from a couple people that we know in Toronto. We are, we're having this opening for the Toronto FC beat writer. What do you think? Would you want it? And I'm sitting in the middle of a lecture going like, Oh man, like, is this really happening right now? I'm, I'm freaking out. So I step out immediately. And I'm just like, yes, please. I would like this job. This is my dream. Yes, is my answer. So it was kind of always in the middle of it. I've always been the kind of person that thought like, school should never be your primary form of education. It should sort of help guide you along the way, but you should always try to learn from your life, from doing things, from experiencing things. So for me, my schooling was always sort of second to the work and maybe, I I don't know, my grades were pretty solid, but I could have done better if I had applied myself primarily to that education. Um, but it was just always a matter of what, like prioritizing. In the end of the day, it was like uh, I would skip classes to go to training. And I would like I remember being in the middle of, of of a reporting sports lecture with Sean Fitzgerald, who's like one of Toronto's best sports reporters. And that's like the chance of a lifetime for an education right there just from talking to the guy. And Jermaine Defoe was sold. And I'm sitting uh-huh. there going and this is like <laughs> eight o'clock, eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, I remember that day. I'm like, all right so I can't even be here right now. I got to go. So I put my hand up and Sean's like, Hey, what's up? And I'm like, but I got to go. Sean, I'm so sorry. And I ran out of the classroom, uh, went, uh, got in front of a computer and I started writing it up and I'm just like, all right, just doing the report, whatever. And I think it was the, I think even that night TFC had sent out like a press release or whatever, or it was like a invite for the like press conference for the next day. So it was already sort of like dropping and everybody had like the reports. So, I mean, I, I, I did that more times than I think I would like to admit. Just skipping lectures, like dipping out of class in the middle of it, just to go take care of something.
0: Fitz, he's a good dude. Yeah. He's, if you ever get a chance just to like go for coffee or beer with him, he's cool. And he's like from that, I kind of call it the golden age of reporting. We don't always see eye to eye in what he chooses to write about, but I appreciate the fact that he's a very talented writer yeah. and he's been employed for a very long time.
1: Yeah. He earned my, he earned my admiration for life when he's, he was my prof for that class. I had submitted a, uh, a TFC. Uh, I don't know if it was a TFC story. I think it was a Ryerson athletic story. I'd submitted it as my first assignment. I was pretty confident. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a sports writer. I've been doing this for a little bit. Like this is for me is like a bird course And then he sent it back with like a 70 on it. And he's just like, uh, this is, this is lacking. You need to fix this. You need to fix this. You need to fix this. And I'm just like, whoa, all right. Like, I got to take a step back, look at this again and be like, all right, you can't get cocky. You can never get too confident in this. I think the second you start seeing yourself as like infallible is when you start to like really fail. And he immediately put me in my place and he was like, All right, yeah, you have a little bit of whatever going for you, but like you're still a kid.
0: You're still a you're kid. Still you doing, have lots of yeah, lots you still to learn. A
1: lot of lumps to take. So I'm like, all right. I took it and the next assignment I was like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna show him. I'm gonna, like, but, I'm gonna show him what I got and right. I'm gonna show him the best I can do. I submitted a TFC story and it came back with like an eighty three and I'm sitting there going like ah oh, it's better. It's better but to like, prove it. I was going for a hundred. And uh in the end of the day, man, like People like, people like Sean Fitzgerald, they'll look out for you because they know that even if they're a little critical, you can take it and that you'll learn from it. You'll grow from it. And I will always appreciate that. He didn't treat me with like kid gloves. He just gave it to me. I have a
0: theory that people in creative roles actually are more thirsty for criticism than they are really for praise because every time someone's like oh i really like that thing you did or that show you worked on or whatever i'm like yeah 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 yeah, thanks you know i just in my head they either don't and this seems mean but it's not meant to be mean they either don't know enough to see the cracks in it and the faults in it or they're just trying to be nice in which case doesn't help me it either the truth is is they're they truly connected to the piece and they really liked it. But I believe we have this thirst in us for criticism so that we can grow. And that's the reason we don't want to, we don't want to beat ourselves down, but we want to know what
1: can we do better because I know I can still get better and I can still keep going. I think the role of criticism, especially for a journalist is incredibly important because we have like the craft itself is basically putting your, thoughts, your words onto paper, and then sharing it to the world, that can be very, that can make you feel very vulnerable. And being able to deal with that criticism from whoever it's from is is very important. I mean, it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to like do something wrong, like seriously mess something up and decide like, I can't do this anymore. Because people will call you out for it, especially if you're like lucky enough that I'm in soccer that if I make a huge mistake, it's not like a world ending mistake. It's just kind of in the scope of a sport. But if you, if you're working on a hard news desk and you mess something up, like in a bad way, dude, I can't even imagine what that like gut wrenching, that heart sinking feeling is like. And, but you know what? You learn from it, man. Like you need a tough skin in this industry and and in whatever beat you're working on, you need that tough skin because without it, I mean, it's really easy to fall into sort of traps and, and, and get really down on yourself. I mean, being a journalist is, is a lot of, of inner thought before you actually put anything onto a page. And so I think even for me, even for myself personally, like there have been days where I was like, thinking to myself, like, what am I doing here? What, why am I doing this? Like I could work for some insurance company and plug numbers into a computer and like, make twice as much. Well, (laughs) (laughs) let's be honest. I mean, I don't know, like there are days where you're just like, why? But then there's that then, then when you're at that point, something will happen. I've always known it like I'm very much open to like the whims of the universe, you know? Where I'm just like, All right, if if this is where I am right now, just accept that this is where I am right now. And we'll see what happens, you know? There's an infat like the beauty of of the impermanent, I, I like to call it. Like, even if you're down, this isn't gonna be you forever. Something's gonna come your way. And you never know
0: how things are working out in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, we have such a narrow for focus perspective on today that we never truly appreciate until a ton of time has passed that we're able to look back and like, and say to ourselves, Oh my goodness, you know, here I was worried about a, but D E and F were all kind of stewing and working or because I didn't get a or I didn't get to achieve A, it then forced me to get creative, which then led me down this road, which then brought me to where I am today. And you know, I think of myself in that sense because I never wanted to be a documentary producer. Fuck that, I never thought of it, ever, ever, never. Until it was kind of like, well, I'm a writer and then I'm a reporter and then I'm this and then I'm that and then I don't like people telling me what to say anymore so I want to create the story myself well how do I do that well I have to use how to learn how to use a camera I'll do that fine and then before you know it you're kind of you're chasing down some other weird path and and that goes to exactly what you're saying you don't know it's it's the impermanent mm-hmm. right it, it's the fact that everything can change i do want to touch on a point though that you brought up about criticism and having to have a tough skin because Armin, are you trying to tell me that in a digital age where everyone has a voice and everyone can reach your articles, you don't have a hundred percent support? You mean there's people on the internet that dedicate some of their time to maybe not
1: disproving what you said, but just shitting on it? yeah no the internet <laughs> the internet has a very weird way of of letting you know that you suck sometimes the internet hates i think the internet hates everybody all the
0: time like 60 percent of the internet hates everybody all the time and then you get your moments where it likes you but then it's just gonna hate you again tomorrow
1: i don't that's the thing man don't, just don't chase it I was always told that in journalism school too. Just don't read the comments. You do your thing. That's why I like Kelly so much because he just deactivated his Twitter account. He's like, I don't need this. I'm just going to do me. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean... I, no matter what you do, you're never going to be able to please everybody a hundred percent of the time. If you can, if you figure that secret out, you'll make it huge in this industry. You
0: can't please you. No one's figured that out.
1: Yeah. I'm stupid. That's
0: what I say all the time. Someone's like, you screwed this up. I'm like, eh, I'm stupid. It's <laughs> well, okay. Exactly. Whatever. It's a good coping mechanism, right? That. It's just crazy. like, we all make mistakes. That's yeah. just, I'm stupid.
1: You're yeah. stupid too. I do get hung up on them though. I do have that thing where I eat away at myself. like, It's such little dumb things. Like, at the score, the worst one we do is, like, mess up alerts. Like, if there's a typo in the alert and that goes out, you'll feel it for the rest of the week. Like, that's one of those ones where you're like, ah, man, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) I remember, okay, actually, I got a funny story for you. I was, man, it must have been maybe six or seven months into my tenure at the score. This was maybe three years ago. And, um... Has it been three years already? I think it's, no, it's been two and a half. Holy smokes, time flies. Yeah. So... Uh, I was yeah just about six or seven months into the t- into my tenure at the score and I messed up an alert I think it was an alert or a headline either either way there was a typo and um, I went down to it was it was like near the end of the day so that's when I was sort of told like hey this was messed up we got to be a little bit more diligent and hard whatever and I was like all right this is the worst so I went down there's like a uh Spanish restaurant right on King and Spadina, like called Patria. So I went down there and uh, I love paella. Like that's like my favorite thing in the world. So I was just sitting there going like, it was one of those days where you really doubt yourself and your abilities or whatever. And you're just like, man, why am I doing this? Like that was the dumbest thing. Why did I make that mistake? Like, I think I misspelled Zidane's first name or something. And I was just like, what's wrong with me? I got to be more careful. got to take it more slow. Like, why am I rushing? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there looking at these chefs making like paella and they have like this open kitchen concept thing. And I'm just watching and I'm just like, dude, like you could literally just like, you're 23 or at this point or whatever. you like, just quit, move to Spain, move to Valencia, learn how to do this and then come back, open a Spanish restaurant or whatever. Like your whole life can change in a, in a, in a heartbeat. If all you literally have to do is take your phone out, plug in expedia.ca or whatever it is and buy a ticket to Spain and your whole life changes. You know what I mean? Like your whole life can change. And I'm just sitting there in this restaurant going like, what's going on in my mind right now? Like, do I want to be a chef? Do I want to be a Spanish chef? Like, is that what my brain is telling me right now? Or is it just like sort of a reflective period where you're just like, there's, I don't know. You're
0: dealing with that, that that idea of, of failure. And and it's very, very small. I'm not trying to blow it out of proportion here, but that's what you're kind of coping with. You're like, oh, dang it, I messed up.
1: Mm-hmm. How do I deal with this? Again, the the same sort of feeling when Seattle beat Toronto. And I made sure that before I went into the Toronto locker room, I just went into the Seattle locker room. Cause I had a pretty good relationship with Stefan Fry. Cause he was around when I was still kind of coming through. So he was a rookie. I was, I think it was still kind of a rookie in that, in that locker room. If a journalist can be a rookie. And, um, I remember like walking up to him afterwards and just in the locker room, everyone celebrating and they got the MLS cup and, Uh, We did an interview and he told me like he felt bad for Toronto, obviously, but he's celebrating his successes. And I was really happy for him, genuinely. But I started thinking to myself, I'm like, man, like it's so strange how like I'm I'm a beat reporter on the TFC beat right now. If my circumstances in life were different, such that my parents had decided to move to Seattle and I had taken the same path, I'd be in this locker room right now celebrating with the team that I've been covering for like the last three or four years. And it's just like, sometimes you can't really control your circumstance. Sometimes you can't really control that fate, but there's such like this beautiful thing and like the duality of it all, you know, like one person can be so heartbroken. One person can just be so jubilant. And then you have a guy like Stefan Fry, who's right in the middle of it and he's seen both. And it's just like, I don't know, man, like there there are days where I genuinely think to myself, I'm like, you could literally just fly somewhere, pick a random place in the world. And I guarantee you in a year, your life will be completely different. And there's such a beauty in that. I just wish that there was like a way of maybe more logistically facilitating that. Cause there's a pause. Seems... There's
0: a life pause button. Yeah. I think we need a life pause button where I don't have to lose my job or my condo but I can go gain life experience somewhere and decide at the end of it, do I want to be a different person or do I want to be that old person again?
1: I feel like that would be so beneficial. beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Just in between high school and university or in between university and, uh, and starting a job or, or whatever, there should be like some sort of program that's like kicks you out of your comfort zone completely. Just like drops you in the middle of like a country where you have no idea what's going on. My brother actually spent a year in Rome teaching English so, like, I'm super jealous of that experience. Like, I'm not even going to lie about it. But I went to visit him right as he was coming back. Like, I, and you could tell, man, like, he changed a lot. But it was also really hard, you know? It's not easy. And that's sort of the thing. It's like, yeah, you could go and try to be a chef, learn in Spain, and bring back the greatest paella recipe of all time. But it's going to be so hard. And, like, you're going to lose everything here just to go do that, you know? It's that next step that's really hard to take. Before we go, this is a, I always say it's not a
0: sports podcast, but you've brought up now that night in December a couple times. What do you remember just from that night, just from that experience of being like the atmosphere or whatever? What do you take away when you, when you look back to that picture on your wall of BMO field, what do you remember from it? What do you take away from that experience?
1: Uh, man, that was a brutal night. Um, I'd already been at the score and I'd stopped going to the games and that was really hard for me because like, I felt like so much of my identity was tied to like covering TFC. So I remember going back to Demo field, going back to that press kind of core and thinking to myself, like, A, you're stepping into the the final and you missed the whole journey and that sucks. Like, I wish I could have been there for that. Like that's like that whole, like seeing that whole season progress so, there was a sort of bittersweet element to it. It was also freezing cold. Like, it was... Stupid. That's what I remember. It was stupid. It was
0: stupid cold. It was Canada cold. Yeah. It was the weather wants to kill you cold.
1: That was... Th- and I'm surprised that players... Like, there were some players who weren't wearing gloves. And I'm just like, guys, geez. And no one was wearing short sleeves, thankfully. But, man, I mean, it was bad. That was one of the worst, I think, soccer, like...
0: Experiences. Experiences.
1: Definitely, remember it just, like, being so surreal. Because I knew that, like... At any given point, I knew that one goal would have changed that game. Whoever was scored that goal would have won it. There was not going to be like a lot of drama. And it was so obvious from like the half hour mark that this is going to be a really cagey match. And I also remember the second, um, everyone talks about the save on Steph, by Stefan Fry and how that was like the big moment. And yeah, sure it was. But I remember before that, like five minutes before that, we hit a post or something. And, I was, and right there I said, yeah, it's, it's not happening. Like this is going to end... Right there. And I think I even turned to Totara, Anthony Totara. And I was like, Anthony, it's not happening, but it's not going to happen. And um, we went to penalties. I was like, I knew it was already done. Armin, we're going to have to do this again. Yes. Because we ran out of time. (laughs)
0: Like we went our time and I still have more to talk about, but we're going to have to pick it up another time. Thank you so much. We do end things. So the whole mantra... Is basically people treating themselves well. And I think that kind of came through in our conversation because it's about over, we spoke about overcoming our own uh, hiccups and our own mental like vices and traps that we set for ourselves. So I end every podcast, I say, be good to yourself and eat your vegetables. So I'm gonna say the first half if you wanna say the second half. All right, let's do it. So everyone, Armin, thank you so much for the time your time and everyone please be good to yourself and eat your vegetables yes it worked love it